The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, very good. I hope you are satisfied with that. Otherwise, uh, so I think we'll <laughs> we'll stick that one. I I think enough. Yeah, yeah. We, d we can do the other ones later on. We'll maybe change around a little bit. Uh, so uh, that is the uh, homage to the Triple Gem, and uh, this is how the Buddha uh, actually recommended us to uh, recollect the uh, Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So if you want to recall these things, this is actually how the Buddha recommended us to uh, remember these things. So it's actually very interesting, uh, but um, uh, maybe some other time we can look at that again, what actually is the content of that. Uh, so quite quite fascinating, actually. Uh. But now let us move on to the... Uh, uh, the suttas, uh, and on this retreat, I'm going to be focus on focusing on the four noble truths, uh, and uh, the reason for that is because that was a request, uh, not from anyone here, but a request from someone somewhere else, uh, and so I usually I do the same thing when I travel around when, uh, for these kind of retreats. I do the same thing pretty much everywhere, just to have a kind of common theme, makes it easy for me, uh, and usually uh, because I'm a lazy monk, I like to. <laughs> have things in the easy, uh, the easy way here. Uh. So this is uh, about that and uh, uh, so the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths is a very uh, obviously very interesting and obviously very important topic uh, in Buddhism. Uh, and one of the reasons why it is kind of very handy for me and also why it is interesting is because in the suttas it is said to be the kind of the overview which encompasses all other kusala dhamma. And kusala dhamma, in this context, of course, the word kusala means like uh, good, uh, yeah, or skillful, or wholesome. It depends a little bit on context, exactly what it means. Uh, and dhamma can mean many different things, but uh, in this context, it means like teaching, most likely. Uh. So the Four Noble Truths encompass all wholesome teachings. Uh, yeah. So what are those? All those wholesome teachings. Uh, well, basically, it is the content of the Sutta Pitika, yeah, or if you like, the four um, main Nikayas. That's basically all wholesome teachings. Uh, anything the Buddha said from the moment he was enlightened uh, until he drew his last breath, uh, yeah, until he said, uh, uh, what he said, Vayadamma Sankara Apamadena Sampadeta, the last words of the Buddha in the Mahaparnibbana Sutta. Uh, so, all, everything in between probably was pretty much uh, included in the Four Noble Truths, except for good morning and good night and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but <laughs> that's always sort of uh, excluded. One of the things about the Buddha, which is interesting uh, and which, which I think is important for all of us to kind of take on board as well, uh, he was polite, he was courteous, uh, he talked to people. Yeah, it always says in the suit as they started off with courteous and amiable talk. Yeah, yeah it's just kind of make people comfortable, everyone can relax, uh, and then you can enjoy the retreat or enjoy the talk more because you feel good. Yeah, this is actually an important part of, uh, if you like, right speech or, you know, the way even the Buddha did this. Uh, so it's important not to get too kind of super austere uh, and just kind of stare into the wall all the time because people will, will get scared if you do that. Uh, <laughs> So uh, Four Noble Truths, very handy, it's all-encompassing, so every uh, sutta that was ever spoken by the Buddha, also the parts of the Vinaya, uh, the Vinaya being the, uh, being the kind of the regulations uh, for the monastic community uh, as well, uh, all that is part of it. Not the Abhidhamma though, Abhidhamma is outside, uh, just to make that 
ultra clear straight away so we don't have any <laughs> we don't get any kind of sidetracked with these kind of such issues uh. so uh, uh, it is all encompassing which is nice when you are going to teach because it means whatever sutta you pick from the sutta pitaka guaranteed is going to be part of these four noble truths yeah so very very kind of makes it very easy uh, for teaching purposes as well huh? so this is the first part why this is interesting yeah and uh, you can almost think of the Four Noble Truths as like a framework, yeah? yeah. And you can think of the all the suttas or the Dhamma, the insight of the Buddha to be like a picture almost. It's like an insight, it's a flash of inspiration uh, that the Buddha had on the night of his awakening experience. Uh, and everything yeah, that he taught, yeah, the 5,000 pages of the Sutta Pitaka, whatever it is, uh, not the Sutta, yeah, the, um, the Four Nikayas, uh, uh, is really a result of that one flash of insight. Uh, so it's very, it's the um, kind of the consequences of that, of that insight and to express it properly, to draw out all the various strands of that insight, it takes, uh, uh, it, it, it's, uh, you know, there's an enormous amount of um, uh, kind of consequences from such a momentary thing, uh, which is kind of astonishing in a sense. Uh, and one of the reasons why it is so vast is because the insight is so counterintuitive uh, and it's so different from how we normally view the world uh, can we all kind of basically people walking around in darkness this is what delusion is all about is very problematic uh, and for that reason it takes a lot to actually explain it uh, it's kind of remarkable though yeah that one flash of insight should produce five thousand pages of written documents uh, that's basically what it comes down to uh, and the Four Noble Truths really encompass, encompass all of these 5,000 pages, if you like. Yeah. So this is one way of thinking about them and why they are so interesting. Once you understand these Five Noble Truths properly, you should be able to slot in all the teachings. Yeah? Find kind of the space, how they belong in these Four Noble Truths. Uh, things like the Five Aggregates. Yeah? There's lots of suttas about the Five Aggregates. Uh, of course, the Five Aggregates are found also in the first noble truth sankitena panchaparana kanda dukkha in brief the five uh, the five um, personality factors um, uh, that are grasped yeah are suffering yeah. so they're right there so you know that the five aggregates fit into the first noble truth uh, and then you have the six sense bases uh, which is just another way of kind of subdividing a human being in a sense six senses uh, this is another way of talking about the first noble truth uh, Dependent origination belongs to the second and the third noble truth. Uh, and a large part of the suttas belong to uh, the fourth noble truth, uh, like the entire last book of the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses of the Buddha, are really just practical teachings. Uh, yeah, how to practice the paths. Everything belongs to that. Uh, go to the Majjhima Nikaya, a lot of the suttas there are about the path. Uh, yeah, like the gradual training, uh, etc., and it all so it all fits in nicely together. Uh, so there will be a test at the end of this retreat. Uh, I will, <laughs> I will say sutta so and so, and your job is to place it in to the right place in the four noble truths. Uh, <laughs> no, there will be no test. There will be uh, no, no no such thing, of course. But uh, so this is how it all uh, kind of fits nicely together uh, in a beautiful way. So this is one aspect of the four noble truths. Uh, but another aspect, which is even, to me, more interesting in a way, is that the Four Noble Truths are a way of thinking about right view in Buddhism. 
Yeah, so what exactly is a right view? And very often when we talk about right view, we talk about right view as a, a ha having a certain confidence in rebirth and kamma and these sort of things. Uh, yeah, But very often that is very, it, it ends up being very an intellectual kind of assent to these ideas. I, you know, I, I agree that there is rebirth or whatever, but it doesn't really go very far here. And the idea of right view is that it's supposed to touch you in a much deeper way. So it actually has an impact on your life. Uh, it does something to you. Uh, it changes your value. It changes your outlook. Uh, it makes your goals and aims in the world different. Your purposes start to change. Uh, yeah? If you are a very worldly kind of person, your aims are very worldly. It means that you are looking for worldly good results yeah which are kind of the ordinary things that most people are looking for everyone is looking for that to some extent uh, but uh, you don't want to go there 100 percent. and as your right view starts to kick in uh, you start to change uh, yeah and your outlook changes your purpose your aim your goal in life what really matters to us our values start to gradually move uh, and change uh, and we think about the world in an entirely new way and this is a matter of degree yeah it's it's very hard to find anyone who has entirely given up pr pr worldly pursuits. Uh, yeah, this is also part of life for most people. That we start to change a little bit, uh, and then we change more and more and more until eventually, if you keep on going far enough, uh, you have changed 180 degrees, and you're looking in an entirely different direction. Uh. And this is this idea in Buddhism where uh, the Buddha says that what uh, Buddhas uh, say is suffering, uh, yeah, worldly people say is happiness. Uh, what the worldly people say is suffering, the Buddha says is happiness. Uh, so it is 180 degrees different. Uh, and that is kind of very fascinating. It shows you the extent uh, of delusion, the extent of the problem that we are under from the point of view of the suttas. Uh. So by looking at the Four Noble Truths, uh, what we are looking at, we're looking at actually trying to start that change starting to look at the world in a different way yeah it is the right view which is at the root of everything else uh, and then gradually you you kind of change around uh. and if you think about the uh, uh, the noble eightfold path well that is exactly what you see on the noble eightfold path uh. you have right view as the very first factor uh, and please remember that uh, the factors of the noble eightfold path they always have a certain sequence uh, yeah, it always starts with right view, and there's a conditioned sequence. So from right view, you get right sankapa. Sank what does that mean, sankapa? Intention, goal, purpose, aim. Some people say motivation. Some people say thought. Yeah, but I think aim and purpose is a nice way of thinking about sankapa. Sankapa means like planning. It means where you're going. It has to do with intention, but intention also means aim and purpose in Buddhism. So. If you have right view, and right view here in the Noble Eightfold Path uh, is defined as understanding the Four Noble Truths. Uh, not always, but that is the most standard way of defining it. Uh, once you have the th that right view at the very bottom, your aim starts to change. Yeah? This is why aim then comes after right view. Because uh, you're looking at things in the right way. You understand where happiness is. Uh, isn't that kind of nice to know where happiness is or where contentment is or where satisfaction is where you know where where suffering is it's kind of useful to know isn't it if you think happiness is that way but actually it's that way and this is the way of suffering and that is you know it's a problem you know what i mean 
kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So we, it's actually very useful, this idea of right view. Once you have right view, basically what it means, it means we know where to look for real satisfaction, real contentment, real happiness, to get away from suffering. It's kind of very, very foundational. In fact, you I will go so far as to say this is what it's all about. Uh, this is what everyone is searching for, but everyone is looking in the wrong place. Uh, so let's not be like everyone. Uh, let's try to kind of be a little bit wiser than, the, than everyone else. This is what the Buddha did. The Buddha, in a sense, rebelled against the Indian culture of the time, which was the Brahmanical culture. Uh, then he moved in a different direction. You have to be a bit rebellious in this world. If you're not rebellious, uh, just a little bit, uh, you're going to end up like everyone else. Uh, and if you look at everyone else, oh yeah, they live, yeah, they do this, and they kind of go to school, and you, kinda, you work really hard, and then you, you, know, you, you kind of build up stuff, uh, and then you get pensioned, uh, and then, then you die. And you think, whoa, what was that all about? Uh, what was the point of all of this? Yeah, I never even thought about that. Uh, and then you kind of die, you are confused, and you cannot not really, not really understand what is happening all along. Let's, not, let's avoid that trap, uh, because that trap is a kind of recipe for uh, suffering down the track. Uh, and this is what this is all about. So we change our attitude, our values, our purpose, our aims uh, right now, and heading in a different direction. And this is what the Noble Eightfold Path is all about. The very source, right view, leading to a different aim and purpose in life, a different goal, heading in a different direction, understanding where real, and I use the word happiness, but really you can use a word like satisfaction, contentment, all of these are roughly equivalent words uh, in this particular context. Uh, or you can look at dependent origination. We're going to look at dependent origination later on uh, because uh, that is a very fundamental aspect of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, and if you look at the dependent origination, the very first factor is called avijja. Avijja is delusion. Yeah, delusion often translated as ignorance, which I don't find is all that satisfactory. Uh, and how is it defined? Not knowing the Four Noble Truths. Uh, yeah, so you can see how it all ties together so beautifully, uh, how everything is kind of one thing here. Uh, so once you understand the Four Noble Truths, uh, it means that this entire dependent origination chain, which shows you how suffering arises in the world, it starts to unravel. Uh, and if you unravel the thing that leads to suffering, then of course suffering itself will eventually cease as well. Uh, so this is really good stuff, uh, yeah? <laughs> an understatement. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to kind of, I live in England for quite a many number of years, so I kind of try to live up to that uh, English conditioning a little bit. So understatement. So it is <laughs> it's good news. Uh, and actually, I should become more Aussie now. I recently became an Aussie citizen, actually. Yeah. So I'm now Oswegian, Oz half, half Norwegian, half Aussie. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's a sidetrack. <coughs> so this is... Uh, why it really matters, the right view, and this is what we get out of these uh, uh, Four Noble Truths. Yeah? It is ultimately a teaching of right view, how to think about the world in the right way. Yeah? And what is fascinating about this, once we're going to come into these Four Noble Truths in a second, but what is interesting about it, some of the things that you see there as, as right view, they seem so ordinary. Yeah, the First Noble Truth says, birth is suffering. Yeah. Okay. Maybe, yeah. yeah. And usually this is, this is actually quite contrary to how we normally think about birth. But anyway, this is kind of the Buddhist outlook. Birth is suffering. Uh, old age uh, is suffering. Uh, yeah, okay, we can sort of, that kind of makes more sense. Uh, yeah, at least to some extent. Illness is suffering. Okay, we, you know, we, we can all agree uh, on that. Uh, 
uh, coronavirus is that suffering or not well look at how people are panicking and kind of you know really and probably coming to a place like this is a bad idea when there's coronavirus so well done for coming here despite the coronavirus what is more important coming here or coronavirus uh, yeah we know what the answer is to that. So forget about coronavirus. If you get sick, okay, that's fine. Par for the course anyway. What do you expect in this world? Uh, that's how things go. Uh, coronavirus is no problem. Uh. So illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Uh, yeah? Not getting what you want is suffering. Uh. Being separated from what you like is suffering. I mean, these things are so obvious. Uh. And it's fascinating that this is then part of what the Buddha calls right view. It is so bleeding obvious. Uh. <laughs> that you almost wonder why is the Buddha talking about these things. Uh, and that is why it is interesting, yeah? precisely because the Buddha talks about something which is so obvious, uh, and yet he calls this right view. Uh. And of course the point is that we need to understand this in a deeper way. We sort of know it, but we don't really know it. Uh, and that is the problem. Uh. So we need to approach these things, we need to think about them again and again. And as we do so, uh, something starts to change inside of us. Uh. We start to get new values in life. What we value is so significant, yeah? Because what we value is what drives your life. Uh, so if your values change, uh, then, of course, uh, your entire outlook, your entire um, aims and goals and everything you do changes as a consequence. Uh, so, and I will show you how, for especially things like the death contemplation, which in a sense summarizes all of these other aspects I just mentioned before, uh, how that is so important for our values and how we direct our life and how we how we think about things uh, so simple things like that it's kind of astonishing that often the simplest things in life uh, yeah very simple things uh, actually can be profoundly important uh, sometimes people think of the spiritual path as very profound and and very kind of abstruse and hard to understand and it's kind of you know ordinary but not for ordinary people but actually it is. Everyone can think about old age and death, yeah? It's not that hard. It's just a matter of depth. It's a matter of profundity. It's a matter of how far you take it. That is really the issue. And that is the hard part, yeah? So it's not difficult. It's not hard. You don't have to kind of, uh, you know, live on the mountaintop or anything like that. I maybe help. It might help. Actually, yeah, maybe it's bad to live. I'm not sure about that. Anyway, that's, 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 that's another question. That's a thing we can talk about. Is it good or bad to live on the mountaintop? But the kind of the traditional cartoon sage always lives on the mountaintop. Yeah? So maybe that isn't the best kind of sage. No, the best one is the jungle sage. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. But the point is that it's kind of simple. Yeah? It's easy. It is not something that we, it is not something that you have to be really smart or you have to have a PhD in mathematics or anything like that to get these things. Uh. So that is the uh, per one of the main purposes of this because in my experience the idea of right view is one of the most fundamental and most important things uh, to really get into to make this path work for us. Uh. And uh, yeah, so um, uh, that is uh, that is the idea of right view. And one of the ways that uh, the Buddha talks about the Four Noble Truths, or one of the ways that they seem to have been used, uh, they seem to have been used in the same way as uh, uh, you had a medical diagnosis uh, in ancient India, or a, you know, a, a medical system, and that was based on the idea that you have an illness. Uh, yeah, It's very similar to what we have now, I presume. So you ha first of all, you have an illness, uh, 
And of course, once you have an illness, you want to diagnose it. You want to figure out what the cause is. Uh, and once you understand the cause, well, then you understand what you have to do to cure it. Uh, and then if you follow that cure, you come to the result, uh, which is the uh, you know, freedom from that illness. Uh, and this is what the Four Noble Truths can be looked upon in that way. You have the illness, which is uh, dukkha. Yeah, there's a problem there to be, fa to be ha had. And then, of course, you diagnose it and you find that the source of that uh, illness is very... The Buddha finds the source, which we you know, you, uh, know is craving. Uh, and then uh, by following a certain path, you eliminate that craving. And when craving is gone, bang, you're free from the illness. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the magic of Buddhism. Uh, and, uh, well, it's kind of magic. Do you think it's magic? It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, we often look for magic in the wrong place. Uh, we think that magic is kind of, uh, well, that's kind of magic as well as what's flying through the air and this kind of thing. It's also magic and it's kind of cool to see. Yeah, if you, I don't know if you ever, have you ever seen anyone flying through the air? You can see it if you look at on magic shows on TV, you can see this kind of things, walking on water, etc. But uh, it is kind of nice. Yeah, I, I always thought one of the coolest tricks uh, to walk through a wall is kind of cool. Yeah, so you just walk out of this building here. Yeah. It's very nice because then you get a shortcut over to the monk's quarters. Uh, yeah, it's very handy. It comes in handy sometimes. Uh. But, uh, but that is not the magic. Yeah. You know, in, in what is interesting about the suit is even though the vast majority of the Buddhist world, uh, I'm not saying anyone here necessarily, but uh, if you look at Buddhism in general, people are really interested in these kind of things. Uh, but the Buddha dismisses them. Uh, for the Buddha, it is the Anusasana Patihariya, which is the most interesting of these marvels, uh, yeah, these wonders of Buddhism. And Anusasana means teaching. Uh, sasana is the dispensation. Anusasana is to teach yeah, or to... Uh, yeah. And patihariya is a word which means a wonder, often translated as miracle, which I think is not a good translation, it's too Christian, but uh, a wonder or a marvel of, uh, of teaching. Uh, the fact that these things are uh, realizable and you can actually, you know, you can get there yourself after instructions from the Buddha. Uh, so this is that, uh, this is why the medicine works. Uh, yeah, the medicine works because it gives this particular result uh, and it is kind of... Uh, marvelous and amazing that actually it should work yeah so what is the problem the problem is dukkha yeah and uh, one of the uh, things about dukkha to understand is that to really get what dukkha means you have to contemplate it yeah. and uh, the uh, i'm always surprised when you uh, look at the world and you see people and sometimes people say oh yeah my life no problem i don't have any dukkha so i'm not going to be a buddhist uh, and I think, right. <laughs> and I think there's some, there's a, you know, this is the problem with delusion. Yeah? You don't even see what is bleeding obvious sometimes. And this is why we have to kind of look at these things very carefully here. But uh, so, so, so to understand dukkha is a twofold thing. One is to actually be honest about your life, uh, understand the big picture of things, death, old age, all of these kind of things, not getting what you want or whatever to be honest about, brutally honest about our experience of the world. Uh, if you're not, you may not even be able to see that there is a problem there. Uh, one of the problems is that we have nothing to relate it to. Yeah, if you, are, if you kind of run around all the time and you kind of delight in doing stuff, a lot of people delight in doing because it's satisfied, it gratifies the doer inside. Yeah, I want to do. Yeah, I feel I'm the doer in the world. And you feel gratified by kind of following that urge to do. Uh, and because that is all you have, and you don't actually have a higher vantage point uh, from which to understand 
the world because you're lacking that bird's eye view or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it means that uh, uh, you cannot actually understand what is happening. You're so immersed in the suffering. Uh, you're lacking the ability to step out of the water for a second and understand the water is wet. Uh, the world is problematic. Uh, yeah? So you're lacking that vantage point. And this is part of the problem. Uh, we are so immersed in it, we can't actually understand what is going on. Uh. So one of the first things that you start to notice in meditation practice is that once you start to get a little bit peaceful, uh, once you start to get a little bit calm and clarity in your mind and you have a good heart with you as you go into these things, uh, you're actually starting to withdraw. You're starting to get that vantage point whereby you're withdrawing from the world. You're looking at things from above. You're getting that bird's eye view a little bit. Uh, and then you can start to see the difference. Uh. But if you dismiss everything from the beginning, uh, there's no chance you're going to go anywhere at all. Uh. And this is part of the problem. Uh. So that's why a degree of faith and confidence also matters in Buddhism. Uh. And ultimately, to understand dukkha, the only way you can really fully understand it is through insight. Uh, it's an insight issue, understanding uh, dukkha. And that is why you can never really just contemplating all day. It's going to help you in the right direction, uh, but it's never going to give you the full understanding of what this is about. Uh, ultimately, it is about insight. Uh, yeah, Panchupadana Kanda Dukkha, Sankitena. It's hard to understand. Yeah, the rest of it you may fathom, but how the five aggregates, the five personality factors can be dukkha, is not easy to fathom. And because it is so hard to fathom, only through insight can it happen. How do you get that insight? Practice the Noble Eightfold Path. Go to Samadhi, then this insight starts to happen as a consequence. So um, there is a, a bit of, uh, if you like, theory uh, on the in the Four Noble Truths. Uh, it's not all about practical issues. Uh, you may uh, recall, so those of you, who, uh, quite a few of you were on my retreat last year. We looked at the 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas. Uh, yeah, Bodhipakya Dhammas, the um, 37 aids to awakening. Bodhi is awakening. Pakka is on the side. It also means like wing. Uh, and Bodhipakya, Bodhi. Pakya Dhamma. Dhamma is like a factor or quality or whatever on the side of awakening here. And of course, what is, what is interesting about those is that the Buddha said, as I mentioned last year, these are also a full understanding of the Buddhist teachings. If you know those 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas, it's all about uh, the practice. Yeah, it's all very practical stuff. Uh, noble Eightfold Path, Seven Factors of Awakening, Five Spiritual Faculties, Five Spiritual Powers, Four Satipatthanas, Four Idipadas, Four Bases of Spiritual Power, whatever you want to call it, Four Right Efforts, 37. If you count those all up, well, 8 plus 7 plus 5 plus 5 plus 4, 4, 4, you get 37 there. So they are also all that Buddhism is about. And they are very practical. This is what is so nice about them. Uh, and then the Buddha says, the Four Noble Truths uh, is everything. Uh. So how does this fit together? Are these things the same or are they different? Uh? One of them look like quite practical. Yeah, all you do is you practice in the right way. The Four Noble Truths seem a bit more theoretical. Yeah, okay, old age is suffering. How is that practical? Uh? And the point is that any practical path, uh, anything that you want to do, it needs a framework. It, doesn't, it cannot exist on its own. Yeah? 
And uh, again, the point is that any practical path as well needs a kind of outlook. This is the framework, an outlook, a way of understanding the world. Uh, and if you look at those 37 factors of awakening, uh, actually the Four Noble Truths are also included in them. Uh, yeah, because right understanding, right confidence of faith, or right wisdom, right view, all of these things are very closely related to each other. Fascinating that in Buddhism, confidence and wisdom are so closely related. Yeah, view, all of these things are very closely related to each other. Uh, and that is where that theoretical aspect, if you like, uh, or the way of thinking about the world, actually is fundamental for the practical path. Uh, so practice needs a little bit of theory, uh, yeah? And with, that, with the theory comes the practice. And when these things are balanced in the right way, then it becomes very useful. Uh, you cannot just have one. Uh, if you have just practice with any kind of theory, after a while you lose your way because you don't really know what you're doing here. Uh. So you need both of them coming together. And also it gives oomph to the practice when you understand things in the right way. Uh. This is the point of all of this. Uh. So uh, these things go together. And this is why... Uh, dependent origination is also a fundamental part of the Four Noble Truths and everything else fits into this. Uh, so uh, that is uh, how these things kind of all fit together. Uh, so that is a little bit of back background for you about the Four Noble Truths. Uh, uh, the Buddha, uh, there's a l large number of suttas found in the uh, Satcha Sangyutta. The Satcha Sangyutta is the last Sangyutta in the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourse, the Buddha number 56, the 56 uh, collection of Connected Discourses is all about the Four Noble Truths. Uh, yeah. Is it interesting? It's Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's not super duper interesting, but it's interesting. Uh, it's not super duper interesting because it's quite repetitive. Yeah, It's like... Uh, so uh, you have these things called the Ganga Payela. Ganga is the Ganges River. That's the Indian word for Ganges. Ganga Payela means like repetition series. So you have this kind of 50 suttas that are one word long. Dick, 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 dick. Yeah. <laughs> so very, very fast. So it's not, it's not all that informative. But there's, there's some very interesting things in there. Things like, you know, when the Buddha awakens in the world, what does he awaken to? The Four Noble Truths. Uh, yeah, that's what the Buddha awakens to. Uh, and when anyone becomes awakened, that's what you see when you become a stream entry. It's the Four Noble Truths. Uh, yeah, this, this is really the insight that you have as an awakened person. Uh. So, uh, let us now move on. Uh, yeah, and I'm going to start off by talking about the First Noble Truth uh, in uh, quite a bit of detail. And uh, I'm going to uh, start off with the famous Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta, uh, the discourse on setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma, uh, which is found, if you want to read it in the sutta, as it's found in the connected discourses. Uh, I just mentioned before the 56 Sangyutta a collection, which is uh, uh, the collection on the Four Noble Truths, sutta number 11 in there. It's kind of strange position. I'm not sure why the sutta number 11 sounds a bit random. But anyway, that's where it is. It should be number one, really. So in the other, I think in other traditions, uh, in the Sarvastivadan tradition, some of the other schools, it actually is the first sutta. And that actually makes much more sense because it is such a foundational thing here. So um, that is the Dhamma Chakka Pavattana Sutta. If you can say that in Pali already, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe if you are kind of been born in Sri Lanka, you might be able to say that. Before anyone born in Australia, boy, it's hard to say. Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta. So if you, 
such a long word. But uh, that is the foundational sutta. And you can imagine, yeah, this is the very first sutta, the first teaching the Buddha gives to his, uh, uh, they're not even disciples yet, they're kind of trying to make them into disciples. Uh, and so this is the first teaching. So of course, this is another way of looking at this as a very important sutta, because it is the foundation. It sets out the framework for all the rest of the Dhamma that he's going to teach for the next 45 years after that. Uh, so for this reason, obviously also very important. Uh. So the Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta happens in Benares. Uh, yeah, have you been to Benares? Anyway, yeah, some of you have been to Benares? Yeah, okay, very good. Uh. You like Benares? Uh? Is it good? Yeah, you like Benares? Okay. <laughs> have you both been to Benares? Yeah, okay. Good. So Benares is this ancient city, yeah, this ramshackle city in India. It looks like the buildings could fall down at any time, but they've probably been around for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, some of those buildings. Uh, uh, this kind of school, I think, is known as the Eternal City, uh, uh, Benares, or Varanasi, as it is known in India. And uh, it gets that, you get that feeling of eternity a little bit when you go there, uh, yeah. And uh, it's beautiful. I really would recommend everyone to go to India occasionally or at least once in a lifetime because it opens up your eyes to what really, uh, what Buddhism and the Buddha is about. Indian society is very interesting, very different from society in Australia or Norway. It is very much more interest in religion and in spiritual matters. And sometimes, of course, those spiritual matters are kind of gone completely wrong and they completely messed it up. But otherwise, uh, it also gets it really right. It's in India that you get Buddhas, yeah? Because that is where, because society is so, has this kind of foundational respect for religion and spirituality, uh, which is kind of a very, very unique to Indian society. Not sure if there's any society quite like that anywhere else in the world. Uh, so I have always really enjoyed going to India because it is so different. Uh, I'm not sure if I would enjoy living there, but it's nice to visit every now and again. <laughs> so this is kind of one of the benefits of, uh, you know, being kind of having, being in this kind of position here. So uh, it's really nice. And when you go there, you, it starts to open up your eyes to, uh, you know, you can, you can actually go to the deer park, yeah, where the Buddha went. That, that site is very clearly marked with some very ancient stupas. Uh, some of the stupas, they probably go back to the time of Emperor Ashoka. They're probably about 2,300 years old. Uh, yeah, at least some of the base of those stupas or the kind of foundational things. Uh, so it's kind of fascinating. Uh, and uh, the, uh, yeah, that's actually it's that's kind of, uh, some of the terrible stories that you hear sometimes, there was that this was back in the 18th century and one of the the, the Dhammarajika stupa, which is now, there's nothing left of it. Uh, yeah, the, it. That was kind of the original stupa where the ashes of the Buddha were supposed to have been interred in this Dhammarajika stupa. And there was this local chieftain there who needed some bricks. And like, yeah, these big monuments, yeah, what are they doing here anyway? This big, we don't really need these monuments. Uh, yeah, who knows what they are anyway? They're just ancient monuments. Uh, and probably, yeah, probably about 2,300 years old, so pretty ancient. Uh, but we need those bricks for a bridge. Uh, yeah, so let's build a bridge out of these bricks. So he demolished the entire stupa. And apparently as he was demolishing it, there was a little casket in there with some ashes in it. Casket, right? we don't need that. It chucked it into the river Ganges, yeah? <laughs> so those ashes went into the river Ganges. And there may have been possibly uh, the relics of the Buddha. Yeah, it's possible uh, because that is exactly where they would have been interred. Uh, you can imagine. So, okay, oh, we don't need this. Yeah, <coughs> River Ganges uh, disappeared forever, uh, never to be had again. Uh, 
So this is kind of the, the story of the world, impermanence, uh, unreliability, how Buddhism quickly disappears, yeah, and how things kind of are uncertain. Uh, from our point of view, it doesn't really matter. We don't need those relics. It doesn't really matter all that much, uh, but uh, it just shows you how these things kind of go. But uh, what it does show you also is that there is a very good, this, these sites have very good pedigree here. Yeah, these are really ancient sites. Uh, and we are, we c you can be almost absolutely sure that these are the places where the Buddha were. So when you go there, it's like walking in the footsteps of the Buddha. Yeah, and that is kind of amazing. It's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's powerful. Uh, and uh, some of these places actually are very powerful. You go to the, Vultures Peak. I'm sure some of many of you have been to the Vultures Peak, uh, yeah. And you kind of sit down there, and even now it's kind of far away. When you look out there, all you see is trees in the valley below. You don't see anything else. You go there early in the morning. You know this is where the Buddha sat, uh, and then you sit down. It's like, oh wow, this is kind of a. It make you know it really kind of gives you goosebumps a little bit, yeah. When you kind of when you're there, oh, it's almost uh, almost too much. Uh, it's almost a bit. Uh, kind of a, yeah, it gives this very strong kind of energy when you go there, uh, especially when it is quiet early in the morning, yeah, before the sun has risen and all of these kind of things. Uh. So uh, it is really worthwhile trying at least once in a lifetime. Maybe for you, maybe you don't get any goosebumps, but that's, that's okay, you don't get anything. You at least you have tried, uh, yeah? And uh, if you, <laughs> so you s see what happens if you go there. So this is this place called Benares. And it has existed for two and a half thousand years. Uh, and uh, of course, the backstory to this is found also in the suttas, uh, where you know the Buddha's quest for awakening in the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, Majjhimanikaya 26, uh, where the Buddha sets out his search for awakening, and eventually he finds that awakening. Uh, yeah? And then after his awakening, he asks, well, who should I now teach? And then he thinks of his teachers, and some of them have already died. And then he decides to go and teach his five helpers that helped him prior to his awakening. And those helpers, they left the Buddha to be. They left him because why? Because they said the Buddha was backsliding. Yeah, the Buddha said, oh, well, I'm too emaciated to be able to reach awakening with a body such as this because he had starved himself down to nothing. I need to take some food to reach awakening. And as soon as he ate a little bit, his five friends said, okay, you are backsliding, we're going to go. Uh, yeah? he, had, he had a little bit of rice, a little bit of porridge, yeah? and that was enough in those days to be considered backsliding. Yeah? So it's a pretty, pretty harsh reality in India at that time. Yeah? So the Buddha then stays by himself, he reaches the awakening, and he says, where should I now go? Who should I teach? I will teach these five disciples. Where are they? Well, he knows that they are in Benares, so he goes to Benares. Uh, and this is where this particular sutta uh, sets in. Uh. So, um, uh, yeah, so the sutta then, this is how, how it goes. At, at one time, the Buddha was staying near Benares in the deer park at Isipatana. There, the Buddha addressed the group of five mendicants. Uh. So uh, the deer park at Isipatana is now called Saranatha. Yeah, that's where you find it. Uh. And uh, Isipatana literally means the fall of the sages. Uh, Isi is like Rishi, same word as Rishi in Sanskrit. It uh, means a sage. And Patana means like to fall. Yeah, so there's some, it has some kind of connection there to sages or whatever. Uh. And uh, the deer park uh, 
uh, often on the Buddha statue, especially if the, you know they have this kind of famous posture on the Buddha statues like this, is it setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. And when you see that, that Buddha statue, you should always look at the relief on the bottom. Uh, and when you look at the relief on the bottom, you will often see the deer. Yeah? And you often see five people there kind of sitting in, f sitting in front of the Buddha. And that is a depiction of what happened in the Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta. The deer park, uh, the five disciples, and often there's a sixth person. Have you seen the sixth person? Uh, yeah, there's a sixth person in there. Who is that, uh, do you think? Yeah. The Buddha is up here. It's a company of the Buddha. Yeah. The sixth person is the donor. <laughs> the one who made, who paid for the, for the stupa, yeah, for paid for the statue. That's the, that's the sixth person very often. Yeah. <laughs> You want to be there in the picture, yeah? You want to be part of this kind of profound uh, uh, thing, yeah? <laughs> it's interesting to know this little thing. So when you see, when you count to six, it's not because you've gone crazy, it's because someone has, has kind, of, uh, kind of wanted to be there yeah, as part of this. Uh. So he addressed a group of five mendicants. Mendicants? Have you heard this word before? Uh, yeah? <laughs> so uh, you know whose translation this is, right? Uh, yeah, when you see the word mendicant, straight away you know who who is translated. There's only one person in the known universe uh, who translates as mendicant, uh, and that person is Bhante Sujato. Uh. Does he ever come here to the BSV? Uh, never comes here. Okay, okay. <laughs> Maybe you can invite him one day. You can ask him why he translates yeah. with mendicants. Uh. <laughs> it's actually quite a nice word. It's nice. It, the meaning is very nice because the meaning is very very close to the idea of bhikkhu. A bhikkhu literally means some. Um, a man or a, or a male who who lives on arms, yeah, who lives on the generosity of others. A bikuni is a female who lives on arms. Uh. So it actually, mendicant is precisely that. It's someone who lives on arms. So the meaning is actually very, very good, uh, uh, very uh, close to what we're talking about. It has another advantage. It's gender neutral. Yeah, there's another nice thing about mendicant. Uh. So it means that. Uh, uh, it is more inclusive in that sense, uh, and that is also nice about it. Uh. The disadvantage is that it is a bit of an archaic word. Uh, yeah, I don't. If you, I d I'm sure if you go around the streets of Melbourne, you won't hear the word mendicant very often. Uh. <laughs> oh, I saw a mendicant the other day. Oh, really? You don't say it? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Nobody would say that. Yeah, it's kind of unheard of. You might say a monk or a nun, but mendicant is not some not kind of your ordinary word. Uh. So that is kind of the background. But if you see the word mendicant straight away, you know this is Ajahn Sujato's translation. Uh, so if you like his translation, say, yay! And if you don't like it, okay, you can put it aside and get, uh, you know, Bikibodi or Ajahn Rose or, uh, or, you know, whoever else you, you prefer. Uh, this is kind of a, a signpost of Ajahn Sujato. There's more signposts. I'll show you the signposts of Bhante Sujato later on as we go through this. Uh, <laughs> so... You have to be a bit naughty as a monk, otherwise it gets very boring to be a monk. So that's why, <coughs> that's why I do these things. So, <laughs> so he, Buddha comes to the five mendicants. And uh, uh, what is interesting now is that the very first teaching that he gives is the teaching on the middle way. Yeah? This is the very, very first one that is coming up now. Uh, and why is this such an important teaching at this particular point? I just want to make, maybe before I even read it out, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of the middle way. Here. And of course, from the historical point of view, from the Buddha's point of view, it is very significant at this particular time, uh, because as we know, the Buddha grew up in uh, what was considered quite a bit of luxury for that time. Uh, 
forget about the stories that he was a prince and all that. That doesn't really connect with the reality of the suttas. But still, he grew up in a comfortable upbringing. That's what you see in the suttas. Uh, so he had. He says that he kind of he you know indulged in the pleasures of the world uh, to you know as much as he wanted when he was younger, and then he gave that up because he realized this is not the path to any kind of spiritual awakening. This blocks you from seeing truth. Uh, why? Because it clouds the mind. Uh, it makes the mind dull. It makes the mind uh, have a vested interest in worldly things. You can't see clearly when you have these defilements that obstruct vision. And we can talk more about this uh, later on. Uh, uh, and then he goes forward. And then he practices a path uh, for a while of meditation. And later on he practices the path of which is basically a Jaina path. Uh, yeah, where he goes into great amounts of self-torture and self-torment. Uh, the Atta Kilamatanu Yoga, which is uh, often translated as self-mortification. Uh, yeah, the idea of torturing yourself is almost as if you torture yourself. You uh, are going. You are doing the opposite uh, of indulging in sensual pleasures. By doing the opposite, the idea is to liberate uh, the soul or the mind or whatever it is uh, from the physical body. Uh, yeah. So the Buddha has done this to an extreme. I mean, really, really to an extreme. When it when he talks about in the suttas, he basically says, "If I took it any further, I would have died." Uh, yeah, he really went to the kind of to the max, as you would expect from if you are going to be a, a you know someone who is the uh, like the preeminent spiritual master in in known history. Yeah, the greatest spiritual genius in. The, in human history, of course, you would expect something very special, uh, and that is basically what he did. So, and that was, uh, yeah, that was the way that spirituality was practiced at the time of the Buddha. It was all about tormenting yourself, yeah, wasting away the body, trying to eliminate defilements by this self-torture. Uh, and uh, the Buddha realized it doesn't work, yeah, yeah, and that is why he starts off this idea of the middle way: don't indulge in the pleasures. Don't torment yourself. Find uh, the middle way here. Why does that work? And uh, the reason why it works is because if you torment yourself uh, or you indulge, uh, it means that the physical body and the five senses, uh, yeah, the world that we are so used to, the world that we are so immersed in, that we hardly know anything apart from that, uh, that world is going to be important. Yeah, if you indulge, it's obviously going to be important because if you indulge, well, you will attach to things you indulge in. Uh, they will be important to you because that's where you find your happiness. Uh, that's what indulgent means. It means that you are kind of finding a sense of joy and happiness and, and delight in those things. Uh, so then, of course, it is a problem. Uh, but if you torment yourself, it is a similar kind of thing because if you torment yourself, there is a desire to get rid of that torment. Uh, the body is still important, the senses are still important because the mind will be concerned about how to get rid of the problem of the pain and all the things that you are creating for yourself. Uh. And the middle way then, what it really means, it is a way where it is a, the way where we eliminate the body. Uh. We put the body to one side. Uh. If there is no happiness to be had through the body, if there is no pain to be had through the body, if the body is completely neutral, it's uninteresting. Yeah? Yeah? It is kind of irrelevant. Uh, so you can put the body aside, and when you put the body aside, then you can focus on mental cultivation properly. Yeah? That is why the middle way works. Uh. 
if you otherwise you're going to be uh, always drawn towards the five when i talk about the body and the five sense i'm using that kind of as synonymous even though that is not quite quite right probably but that's how i often talk about things uh, yeah the five senses and then you find that middle way where the whole body is put to one side uh, and this is why it is so important to be at ease in your meditation practice uh, this is why it matters to be comfortable you will see the way that the Buddha and the monks and the nuns talk about meditation in the suttas or talk about they abiding in the forest, they will very often ask each other, are you pasu? Pasu means comfortable. It means at ease. It means relaxed. Yeah, Are you at ease? So being at ease is a fundamental part of the Buddhist path. It is not a path of self-torment. It is not a path where you sit for two hours and you cannot try to get through the pain. I wouldn't recommend that unless you have super-duper mindfulness uh, and super-duper samadhi, then maybe you can do that. Uh, <coughs> but it's not that many people who have super-duper mindfulness and super-duper samadhi. So wait till you have those things properly established, and maybe then you can play around a little bit with those things. But even then, I wouldn't really recommend it. Uh, because if you have those qualities anyway, you're already kind of gone beyond the body. You don't have to worry about the body anymore. Uh. So I would, I would never recommend people to do all of this uh, tormenting of the body because the Buddha basically says in the very first teaching, it's amazing how we forget the very first teaching sometimes, yeah, the first thing he says, don't do this because it doesn't work. The middle way is the path. Then you are on the right track. And, uh, you know, the reality is that life is already problematic enough. Yeah, enough dukkha in life. And uh, I don't know if there's anyone here who doesn't have enough dukkha. If you want more dukkha, well, then please, you know, do that. But uh, most people, even I have enough dukkha in my life, to be perfectly honest. Uh, and uh, even Ajahn Brahm, yeah, who kind of sits down and chills out in samadhi so easily, still he says, oh, too much dukkha in life. Uh, yeah. So it doesn't matter really who you are. Even if an arahant, you probably say there's too much dukkha. So... Um, this is the problem. Yeah, There is enough dukkha already. Let's not create more dukkha, more problems. The spiritual path uh, should be something that actually helps us to relieve some of the suffering in life. Uh, if it doesn't do that, then actually it becomes counterproductive and doesn't really work. Yeah? And this is the very first thing to do, Yeah, to uh, uh, stop and to avoid too much suffering is not to allow the body and meditation and the spiritual path just to become more of a problem. Uh, uh, than we already have. We have enough dukkha already in life. Uh. So please don't, please try to avoid that one. Uh. And it is fascinating how many Buddhists in the world uh, actually fall into that trap. Uh, yeah, And they actually end up uh, going to retreats and again, oh no, I never want to go on a retreat again in my entire life. Why? Too much dukkha, so much tension. Oh, so, so terrible. Uh. And you tell them, but you know, not all retreats are like that. Yeah, come to... Ajahn Brahm's retreat, yeah, or whatever. Ajahn Brahm says, Chit, relax, yeah, lie in your bed, have cups of tea, all you have to come to it. Do, do, there's only two things that are obligatory on this retreat. What are those? Breakfast and lunch, uh, yeah. This is, th this is what Ajahn Brahm says on his retreats. And it's so nice because it means you can relax, yeah. It kind of gives you a free license basically to do what you, uh, what you feel you need to do during that, that retreat. Uh, and that is so important for people, uh, so remember that, uh, and when you do that, then you are on the right track. Yeah. Uh, so one of the, my favorite meditators is a monk I visited recently in Thailand, a monk called Ajahn Ganha. And uh, he, he's often, he's, you know, he lies down when he meditates. Uh, 
and uh, so we, uh, you know, we uh, we asked him, well, what do you do when you lie down? Well, he says, I don't do anything here. So we said, okay, well, you, you don't what, what, how come you don't you don't fall asleep then, do you? No, that would be doing something, he says. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? <laughs> because to fall asleep, you have to kind of turn off, yeah? But if you are really alert, bang, you're always there, so you can't really turn off. Uh. This is Ajahn Ganda. And he is, you know, if there's anyone in this world who is an arahant, well, I would kind of put my bets on someone like him. He's just kind of this very bright person. Uh. And when you sit next to him, it's like, oh, it's almost almost too much. Yeah, but bright, but very kind, super duper kind. He has this incredible heart and is always kind. Yeah, and uh, yeah, when you're with him, you kind of get this feeling of someone very, very special. Yeah? And uh, he uh, stayed at Bodhinada Monastery for quite a long time back in the late 80s. Uh, and so I asked Ajahn Brahm, he stayed there for about six months or something. So I asked Ajahn Brahm, well, has he always been like this? Ajahn said, yeah, pretty much always. <laughs> so he's a super bright person, yeah, and he had, must have had some very profound attainments very early on in his life. Uh, so if you ever want to visit someone interesting, yeah, some kind of special person, uh, uh, Ajahn Ganha in Thailand is actually, he's pretty, he's pretty awesome. He's pretty cool, really cool, but also very, uh, very, very kind and very soft and gentle, uh, very beautiful person here. Uh. So anyway, I, I'm not sure how I got there, but anyway, that's uh, <laughs> that's where we got. So uh, er, okay, <laughs> um, so that is just a little bit about that middle way and how to use that middle way in practice. Yeah, to find the comfort not to be afraid of moving your posture. Uh, sometimes you can sit on the floor, other times you can sit on a chair, sometimes you can lie down. Try different postures as well. It doesn't have to be the same posture all the time. Uh, and if you get that right, then you will be at ease and you will be able to put the body aside and then you can focus on the mind and you can make meditation happen. Uh, so I am uh, going to stop there because, and I will read out the, uh, uh, the actual middle uh, way uh, later on uh, so uh, yes uh, so I will that is it for this morning uh, and then uh, uh, there will be what's uh, let, let me just check the program again here uh, there's lunch at 11 and the next Dhamma talk will be at two o'clock so we'll see you uh, see you around at the latest at uh, at the Dhamma talk uh, if you want to come there's no obligation to come of course uh, so if you think that uh, you don't want to hear this Dhamma talk that's perfectly okay but uh, otherwise uh, two o'clock yeah. Okay.